So if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, um, our Advent series is on the heart of Jesus. And so basically what we have done is we have tried to pick five passages for us to look at that are going to sort of hold the heart of Jesus out according to what Scripture tells us about Jesus and help us to look at all of the different facets of his person and work and some things that may surprise us about him. Now, when we say the heart of Jesus, and sorry, our passage is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, if you'll go and flip there. When we talk about the heart of Jesus, the heart in Jesus' day meant something very different than what it does for us. To a first century Jew, when you spoke of the heart, you were speaking of the emotional and sort of volitional seat of a person. It was the, the control center, if you will, of their emotions and their actions. And so in other words, the heart was the motivation center. It's what drove everything that a person did. And so when we talk about looking at the heart of Jesus, we're just asking the question, what is at the very core of who Jesus is? What is most deeply true of him? What drives everything that Jesus does? And Jesus told us himself, and Kevin preached on it two weeks ago, and the answer is a little bit surprising. Jesus says that at the very core of who he is is gentleness and humility. That when we examine the heart of Jesus, what we find is someone who is gentle and inviting. And see, if, if left to our own sinful intuitions and our own sinking suspicions, this is not what we would assume about Jesus' heart for us. But the Bible from cover to cover challenges our assumptions about who God is and replaces them with what he declares about himself. And we're praying that the Holy Spirit does that for us today. As we look at a passage that focuses on, yes, what Jesus did in the past, but also what Jesus is doing now for us. So with that said, let's turn our attention to God's Word, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. The author says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. May the Lord bless it, bless the preaching and hearing of it, and may it make it fruitful in our lives. Amen. So... Our thesis today is sort of what we're working towards. If we just kind of wrap up this whole sermon in one sentence, it's this. We can approach the throne of God for help because Jesus is our great high priest. And we're going to kind of break that apart into three different points that you have on the screen. We have a great high priest. We have a sympathetic high priest. And therefore, we can draw near to God. So first, let's look at that first point in verse 14, that we have a great high priest. The author of Hebrews begins in verse 14 by telling us that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. All right, now let's sort of talk about what it means for Jesus to be our high priest for just a second, because that's not a, a category that we tend to default to when we think about Jesus, right? Um, all the way back in Exodus 28, after God had rescued the nation of Israel from captivity in Egypt... He brings them out into the wilderness, and as he begins to sort of set in place his plan for how the, the nation would govern and how the nation would conduct its worship of him, he installed a high priest. 
the first of which was Aaron, Moses' brother, right? This was in Exodus 28. And at the end of Exodus and pretty much the entirety of Leviticus, we see details about the various responsibilities of what that high priest did for the nation of Israel. But the author of Hebrews actually summarizes his role and responsibility really well. If you look in verse 1 of chapter 5, just right down below our passage, the author tells us that for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So fundamentally, the high priest represented the nation of Israel to God and vice versa. He was the mediator between God and his people. And a vital part of his responsibility, as verse 1 right here says, was to offer gifts and sacrifices to God, to atone for sins, to make propitiation, as Kevin mentioned earlier. So while this seems rather foreign to us as modern Americans, right, this is not, again, something we think about very often. We're not very used to talking about a high priest we need to see that this is God graciously providing a way for unholy people to enter into the holy presence of God, right? That's the problem all throughout the Old Testament is that an unholy person cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And a high priest is part of the way that God answers that dilemma in the Old Testament. But like other things in the Old Testament, Even the high priest was only a shadow of the glorious realities that were going to come and be revealed in the New Testament. It pointed forward. And so, in other words, the office of the high priest, maybe unlike how we typically think of it, the office of the high priest did not become obsolete, right? We didn't stop needing someone to stand between us and God. So God provides one for us, but one that is far better than what the Israelites had in the Old Testament. God provides us a great high priest, and not just any high priest, but a great high priest, and it's his own son. Now, right here in verse 14, there's three things about Jesus' work that are sort of implied that I want us to see that make Jesus' work as our high priest far better than anything the Israelites had in an Old Testament high priest. Number one, he is great because he is the son of God. This is really important that when... When the author of Hebrews here calls Jesus our great high priest, he is not saying that Jesus became great by being our high priest. Jesus was already great because he was or is the Son of God. No one else possesses that title. He's great because he is the Son of God. And then secondly, the same thing that makes his high priestly ministry better is that he has passed through the heavens. See, in the Old Testament, the high priest, when they were to go in and offer sacrifices to God, once a year they were allowed behind the veil of the temple into the Holy of Holies where God's symbolic presence dwelt. And he went in and would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. But again, this was someone ministering in the shadows. Jesus ministers in the substance. He is entering into the heavenly reality itself. Jesus is not in a room on earth. Jesus has passed through into the heavens, into the very presence of God. And when he entered into God's presence, he sat down at his right hand. Which brings us to the third thing that Jesus does that is far better for us is that he offered a better sacrifice than anything the Old Testament priests could offer for sin. Old Testament priests had to enter year after year to offer sacrifices that could only provide sort of a temporary covering of sin. Right? We know that the blood of lambs and bulls cannot take away sin from us. 
It was a temporary covering. Hebrews tells us later in the book that when Jesus entered in, he provided a sacrifice once and for all, and it was nothing less than his very own blood. Jesus doesn't go and offer lambs and bulls. He goes and offers himself. And that sacrifice will never need to be repeated. It will never need to have anything added to it. He offered a better sacrifice. And so because of the work of the great high priest, the author then goes on to give us a command, an exhortation. He tells us to hold fast our confession. In other words, persevere. Don't shrink back and succumb to sin and unbelief. In the very next verse, the author doesn't just tell us that we should persevere, but he tells us why we can persevere. This is point number two. Let's look at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. All right, so stated positively, and this is our second point, is that we have a sympathetic high priest. We have someone in heaven for us who can sympathize with our weaknesses. I would ask you this question. I asked our students this when we were going through this lesson uh, a few weeks ago. And I should ask, when you hear that Jesus sympathizes with you, how does that strike you? What comes to mind? Right? The way that we use that word sympathy kind of guts it of its power here, if we just sort of think through that in the normal way we think of the word sympathize. When we think of sympathy, maybe we imagine some sort of detached pity, right? Someone feeling sorry for us, but not able to actually help. Fortunately, that's not what's true of Jesus. When the author says that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, that word sympathize can actually be translated co-suffers with. There is a real solidarity between Jesus and his people that goes beyond some sort of detached pity. This passage conveys solidarity. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that as we face the difficulties of the human experience, Jesus does more than feel sorry for us. He actually comes alongside of us and shoulders that sorrow, that burden with us. The closest thing we can experience this side of heaven that gives us just a taste of what this is, is the relationship between a parent and a child, right? Uh, If you have children, you know that when something hurts them, you hurt, right? Uh, Whether or not that pain is self-inflicted, sometimes they do dumb things, they shoot themselves in the foot, sometimes things just happen to them, right? But either way, when they hurt, you hurt. So, child of God, hear this. Jesus hurts with you. What hurts you hurts him. He shoulders our burden. His sympathy is not detached from us. But this kind of closeness, this kind of solidarity, how? How in the world can Jesus experience that? How can he feel what we feel, hurt when we hurt? The author of Hebrews tells us, because he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus gets it. We may be tempted to think that because Jesus is our great high priest, because he is very God of very God, that he cannot relate to our suffering, that the things we experience by nature being humans in a fallen world, Jesus can't relate to that. And Jesus 
corrects us here by his word. The author wants us to know that Jesus willingly subjected himself to everything it means to be a human living in a fallen, broken world. He experienced thirst, hunger, poverty, embarrassment, feeling misunderstood, loneliness, abandonment by his closest friends, torture, slander, injustice, and even death. Dane Ortland, the guy who wrote our Advent Guide that goes along with this series, he urges us to consider our own life in light of this truth and says this. He says, think about your own life. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at by the impressive people. In short, when the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us and embraces us. End quote. See, we tend to feel that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are, right? Suffering has a way of sort of pushing us into felt isolation. And so the more pain we experience, the more alone we feel. And Jesus tells us that's actually not the case, that when you experience suffering, when you experience pain, Jesus co-suffers with us. We are not alone in our suffering and in our pain that sorrow that feels so unique to us that leaves us feeling completely isolated was not only experienced by Jesus, but it is being shouldered by him in the present. But perhaps the most acute pain that we feel is not the suffering that happens to us. right? One of the things that's perhaps the most painful thing we experience as human beings is the sin and subsequent regret that we bring on ourselves. That's probably the most painful part of the human experience, if we're being honest. So should we be discouraged then that Jesus can't sympathize with us there? Is he only a Savior that sort of halfway sympathizes with our problems? And again, the author emphasizes, no, that Jesus can sympathize even here. Now, let's be very clear that Jesus' sympathy with us in our sin is not a shared experience because Jesus has sinned. Right? The author says that Jesus faced all these temptations, but without sin. Jesus never once gave in. So if he can't sympathize with us there, per se, then what is this sympathy that he has for us? What is this shared experience that we have? His sympathy is rooted in the shared experience of temptation. Jesus experienced the waves of temptation that you and I do, that alluring pull towards self-indulgence rather than God-glorifying obedience. He was made like us in every respect. That's what we read for our confession of sin just a few moments ago. He was tempted in every way that you and I have been, are being, and will be tempted, and yet never caved. He never once sinned now we read that and we think well then that means he's less able to sympathize with us that means he still doesn't quite get it 
But again, we need to see that his obedience doesn't dampen his sympathy. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talked about this very issue. And he compared temptation to a strong headwind. Right? And as we walk forward into temptation, the wind gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And eventually, what we do as human beings is that at a certain point, we are going to cave to temptation. We are going to lay down and throw in the towel. C.S. Lewis says, Jesus never did that. Jesus continued to walk headlong into the temptation, headlong into the suffering, and never once laid down. He never once caved and sinned in thought, word, or deed. Jesus persevered. And church, what that means is that Jesus alone actually knows the full weight of temptation. If temptation gets heavier and harder the further in we go, and Jesus never laid down, he persevered all the way to the end, that means that he alone knows the full weight, the full cost of obedience. Jesus cannot sympathize less with us because he persevered. He sympathizes more. He gets it. Far better than we do. We have never experienced perseverance through sin like Jesus. He knows the cost. He knows the weight of temptation. So, beloved, listen, when we suffer and we face these waves of temptation, and even when we sin, Jesus is far from the irritable or uninterested Savior that we assume he is. We have a high priest who is not detached from our pain, but co-suffers with us. He truly understands. So that's why we persevere. But then how practically do we persevere? How do we keep going? This brings us to our third point, is that we can draw near to God. Verse 16, the author of Hebrews says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because we have a great high priest in the presence of God who has completely paid for our sin and one who sympathizes with us, we can draw near to God with confidence. Why? Because the compassionate, sympathetic heart of Jesus for his people mirrors God's very own heart. God longs for us to draw near to him. And this means that we have somewhere to go when we need help and mercy. And this is really good news for us because every single one of us needs help. Now, this goes against every fiber of our being, at least for most of us, right? We do not want to admit that we need help. We don't want to admit that we don't have it all together. But deep down, we know. We know that we are not God. We know we are weak and we experience temptations. We have limitations. We actually do need help, even if we don't show that to anyone else. But we also have something else, not just need, but we also have sin living in us, right? We, we constantly fall short of that bar that we know God has set for us. And so where that leaves us is not only do we know that we need help, but we also feel that we don't deserve help. So we end up feeling trapped. And so what do we do when we feel trapped, right? We know that we need help to live our lives. We need help with our marriage, help with our kids, help with being good stewards of our finances, help with our health, our jobs, our anxiety, our depression. Our needs are great. But if I know I don't deserve help with those things, 
What do we do? Right? There are several dead-end options that we take. When we know we need help, but we feel we don't deserve it, there are a few things we try and do instead. First, and perhaps most common, is that we can strive to be our own saviors, to be the help that we need. Right? So we work with all of our might to sort of crowbar our lives into order. What do I need to do? What do I need to change? What do I need to improve to make my life go the way it's supposed to, to fix me and fix my life? You can certainly take this approach. Maybe you're even doing it now. And you may be lauded as an exemplary person, someone to imitate, a picture of success, a picture of put-togetherness. But you know deep down that you will never be the help you need. That no matter how much we work, we simply cannot fix ourselves or make life go the way we think it ought to go. So the second thing we try and do, and sometimes we sort of work through a progression of this, right? So if crowbarring our life into order doesn't work, then the second thing we do is we try and numb out so we don't feel our need quite as acutely. We do this with food, with alcohol with Netflix and video games, with hobbies, anything we can do to just try and numb out and forget for just a moment that we don't have it all put together. And third, when that doesn't work, we despair. We need help, but we don't deserve help, and we can't be our own help. So we give up. We throw in the towel, and we just stop trying. We accept that this is our faith, that life's just not going to get any better than this. I'm not going to get any better than this. And so I would just ask you, when you feel your need, when the fallenness and brokenness of our world begins to close in on you and you're confronted with your own brokenness, how do you respond? Where are you at this morning? Are you responding in one of those three ways or some combination of those three? Fortunately for us, there's a better option. There's a fourth option that God gives us. We can take God at his word. We can hold fast our confession, trusting that we have a great high priest who offers us help. And it's important that we see that the help that Jesus offers us when we draw near is not deserving help. This is not called the throne of what you deserve. It's the throne of grace unmerited help, help we do not deserve and have not merited. We can draw near. Right now, how how do we draw near? Very practically, we pray. Because we have a high priest in heaven who receives our prayers, we can draw near and pray with confidence. We can resist the lie that we are stuck, that we are hopeless, Like a sailboat without a sail. Folks, when we are facing temptation, and even after we have succumbed to temptation, we can approach the throne of grace for help in times of need. I'm going to close by just asking two questions. Number one, have you ever placed your trust in this kind of Savior? Have you, have you come to that point of realizing your own limitations, your own brokenness, and realize that you simply cannot be the answer, that you can't fix you, you can't get you out of this hole? Have you come to the end 
of all the things that you use to numb out and realize that none of them will truly offer relief? Have you come to the end of your despair and realize that hopelessness can't be the answer either? But folks, if that's you and you've never come to Jesus, then I, I invite you to talk to Kevin after the service and come and place your faith in Jesus. To come with all of your brokenness, with nothing to offer, and just simply say, Jesus, I need help. And I'm not coming pleading my own merit. I'm not coming promising I'm going to try harder. I'm just coming to the throne of grace, drawing near to the one who has sympathy for me, who co-suffers with me. Now, if your answer to that is, yes, I have placed my faith in Jesus, absolutely, then let me ask you this question as a diagnostic. When you sin, how do you respond? Right? This is, this is a good question to sort of help us see how our hearts are coming to grips with the truths of the gospel. When you sin, when you blow it, right? When you, when you go back to that sin that you just can't seem to shake, how do you respond? Is your first thought, I've got to draw near? The answer is probably no, right? For most of us, when we sin, we shrink back. We think, I've got I've to keep God at arm's distance, and I've got to go get me fixed. I'm going to put a little bit of time and space between me and God until I get this sort of cleaned up. Maybe have a, you know, establish a new streak of not gossiping, not saying that, not doing that, not losing my temper. And after a day or two, right, when I'm feeling a little better and I've, I've worked it up a little bit, all right, then, then I'm going to draw near. Church, we have a great high priest who has been tempted and tested in every way that you and I have, yet is without sin. If we're hanging back, what that proves is there's still areas of unbelief lurking in our hearts that we need the Spirit to come in and expunge those areas, to clean and replace them with the truths of the gospel. When you blow it and when you don't, come to Jesus the one who sympathizes with you, who co-suffers with you, who gave himself for you. That's the gospel. Let's pray.